This is WHPK Chicago, operating through Studio Transmitter Link, WL0253. I'm Rebecca Satterwhite, and this is the Grok Science Show from WHPK 88.5 FM, Pride of the South Side. Grok's is a word that means to perceive something so profoundly well that you understand it on an intuitive level. The word was coined by Robert A. Heinlein in the 1961 science fiction novel, Stranger in a Strange Land. The Grok Science Show was founded in 2002 by members of the Biological Sciences Division here at the University of Chicago. Today, the show is still student-run and broadcast out of the WHPK studios in a 100-year-old bell tower. It's the 11th of July, 2019, and this is my 12th show. Yay! Welcome back to the Croc Science Show. It's me, Becca Satterwhite. It is summer here at the University of Chicago. For our Getting to Know Me segment today, I asked Science Twitter what I should talk about, and Pop Culture Obsession won the poll. So you get to hear about Mr. T's Twitter. To know where I'm coming from, you have to understand that my childhood was at a time when Mr. T had his own Saturday morning cartoon and accompanying breakfast cereal. He was absolutely one of my heroes. I really dug his positive messages of fairness and friendship and his amazing and abundant jewelry. Elton John was another childhood hero of mine for 
similar jewelry-related reasons. In my recent adult life, Mr. T has come back via the magic of Twitter. And like most things in life, this is of a dual nature. I would say that Mr. T's Twitter is 80% wonderful and 20% unfortunately religious. But don't take my word for it. I will share some of his words with you now. Each of these made me smile, if not giggle with joy to myself as I cut and pasted them for you for today's show. From July 8th, 2019, congratulations to our U.S. World's Women Cup champions. Wow, you did it again. Four-time champs. USA all the way. Hashtag Women's World Cup 2019. Hashtag U.S. Women's Soccer Team. So pretty great, pretty positive, pretty standard Mr. T from February 29th of this year. Good morning, world. Time to hit the gym. Grr. Hashtag Tuesday morning. Hashtag good morning, world. Hashtag I pity the fool. Hashtag no pain, no gain. Again, classic stuff. From the 20th of May of this year. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jesus, for another birthday. I am so thankful for my health and my strength. From the 13th of February of this year. Another chapter of my book is complete. Hashtag Wednesday wisdom. Hashtag Wednesday motivation. Hashtag I pity the fool. Hashtag author life. From June 16th of this year. Happy Father's Day to our Heavenly Father. Prayer hands emoji. And to all the fathers around the world. Hashtag Happy Father's Day. Yellow rose emoji. From the 25th of February, congratulations to all the Oscar winners. Hashtag Monday mood. Hashtag congratulations. From April 21st, happy resurrection day. Matthew 28, 6 and John 20, 29. Hashtag resurrection Sunday, which I've never heard of. Is that Easter? Gotta be right. June 10th. Thanks, Danny Trejo, for coming by. I always wanted to meet you. Wow. Danny is a tough brother on screen, but he has a heart of gold in real life. Hashtag thank you. From February 25th, what is Christmas to me? Christmas is John 316 to 17. Thank you, Jesus. Hashtag God bless. Hashtag Merry Christmas. And finally, from last year, this is October 17th of 2018, Mr. T's tweet. No matter what situation you're in, just remember this. ABC, always be cool. Grr. Hashtag Wednesday motivation. Hashtag ABC. Hashtag I pity the fool. Hashtag Mr. T.
All right, you're listening to the Grok Science Show with me, Becca Satterwhite, and it's time for What's Up with Wasps. So Wasps Up this week is that wasps kick ants out of plants to steal nectar. Dun, 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 dun. The citation for this information is a paper titled Kick Out the Ants, colon, A Novel and Striking Behavior in Ant-Wasp Interactions by authors Riccioli, Mendez, and Guillermo Ferria and published in the journal Sociobiology in 2017. So I got some background information for you. Mutualism, that's our word of the day. It's an interaction where organisms obtain higher reproductive success, which is what we call fitness in the evolutionary biology literature. Reproductive success is higher when organisms are together than when they are in the absence of that relationship. So the story starts with the case of the famous trophobiosis in the Brazilian Cerrado. This is between ants and an insect named Athalian reticulatum. So A. reticulatum is the genus and species. It's a member of the insect infraorder Cicadomorpha, which contains the cicadas. <laughs> Just kidding. Cicadomorpha contains the cicadas the leafhoppers, the treehoppers, and the spittlebugs. So it's just like a clade of bugs of this type. I'm actually going to just call the bug in the situation a cicada because it's more convenient that way. It's not strictly correct, but I don't want you to keep track of all these weird species names. So I'm just going to say the cicada in the story. So we got a cicada, we got an ant, and the famous trophobiosis is all about access to sweet, sweet honeydew melon a sweet-flavored, carbohydrate-rich substance that is excreted by sap-sucking insects, in this case, the cicadas. So apparently these cicadas are just dripping with honeydew nectar while feeding on these delicious plants, and a certain type of ant comes along and provides protection to the cicadas in exchange for access to that sweet, sweet nectar sweat. Now enter the devil. The wasps come in and compete with the ants for access to the cicada sweat. The wasp today is Pseudopolybia vespiceps. I'm just going to call it a wasp. These wasps establish a foraging territory and exclude ants that attempt to disrupt their exploitative behavior with the cicadas. So they like chill out and make their own territory where they can exploit the cicadas for honeydew juice and they exclude ants from that area. But the wasp, this is important, does not provide any protective benefit to the cicada. So in this case, it's a parasitism, not a mutualism. This type of opportunistic foraging behavior is known as kleptobiosis or kleptoparasitism. These are all new words for me. The behavior is observed often in social wasps, which steal resources during foraging. This is great. They don't need to wait around to evolve their own sap-sucking abilities. They just need to find a bug that already has it and then exploit it. So one more thing you need to know is that both the ants and the wasps provide a behavioral stimulus that somehow provokes the cicada into spewing honeydew droplets. They call this behavior atinating, which I think means that the wasps just hit the cicadas with their antenna to shake nectar droplets loose. Ants and wasps exhibit this tactile stimulus that leads the hemipterans to flick a droplet of honeydew. So I don't know if the bug, if the cicada is flicking the honeydew or it's like physically just coming off of it because it's being shaken up. Anyway, probably doesn't matter that much. So wasps up is that the researchers in this paper observed a novel wasp behavior that we never knew occurred. 
While the ants were attending the cicadas, the wasps hovered in circles around the ants and stroked them with their forelegs. It started when the wasps flew up, stretched their forelegs, and then flew down towards the ants, which fell from the plant. They call this behavior kicking out. Moreover, the cicadas did not remain inert. The cicadas attempted to use their hind legs to hit and avoid the wasp without success. So when the wasp had removed most of the ants, the wasp landed on the cicadas and started to antenate their abdomen, which I think is the hitting with the antenna thing. However, the wasp did not appear to focus on a specific area, antenating all over the cicada body. The wasp spent about 30 seconds hovering in circles and kicking the ants off of the plants, and then about 27 seconds antenating the cicadas. The interactions occurred in the lower surface of the leaf close to where it joins the stem. Okay, so I have a few discussion points for this what's up with wasps. The wasp may imply costa cicadas because the interaction with ants is interrupted by force and because the honeydew is lost in a non-profitable interaction. Although this interaction apparently only benefits the wasp, another study suggests that wasps may defend a territory around cicadas. In this case, although wasp protection may not be as effective as it would be with ants, wasps may ultimately provide an indirect benefit to the cicadas. So more study is needed. Needed. They're not really sure if it's actually benefiting the cicadas, but it's so cool that the cicadas fight back. Obviously, they don't really want to be parasitized. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with them and the ants, but I love that. And then the second discussion point I wrote is that this has cool conservation implications because this particular wasp species, P. vespiceps, is an indicator of high conservation status of riparian forests. When you are seeing a lot of this wasp, it means the forest is doing well. It's doing well enough to support the wasp's niche. If the forest was in decline, you wouldn't be seeing this wasp at all. So it's a pretty good thing to see in terms of forest health. So therefore, we suggest that wasp-cicada interactions in the Brazilian Cerrado may be an important factor for insect conservation and maintenance of ecological processes. So that's what's up with wasps this week. You're listening to the Grok Science Show on WHPK 88.5, Pride of the South Side, and I have a few public service announcements for you. Black women in America are dying of breast cancer at unacceptable rates, about 40% higher than white women. Black women are more likely to be diagnosed younger and also more likely to be diagnosed at later stages with more aggressive forms of the disease. The Ad Council is working with Susan G. Komen to educate and inspire black women to understand their risk and engage with information and tools that can ultimately promote early detection. Drawing on the audience insight of sisterhood, the campaign Know Your Girls empowers each woman to treat her breasts with the same love and attentiveness she does her closest friends. The PSA is drive to knowyourgirls.org, where women can access information and tools to help them learn their breast cancer risk and family health history and have an informed conversation with their doctor. That's knowyourgirls.org. Girls with female role models in STEM are more likely to stick with it. Research shows that young girls enjoy subjects like science, technology, engineering, and math, but as they get older, they start to feel that STEM isn't for them, based on outdated stereotypes. The new campaign, She Can STEM inspires middle school girls to stay in STEM by showcasing female role models across a variety of STEM fields. 
PSAs give girls ages 11 to 15 the inspiration they need to see themselves in STEM and reinforce that STEM is cool, creative, and inspiring. to the Crack Science Show on WHPK with me, Becca Satterwhite. I have a science story for you called Native Bees Make Bigger, Better Strawberries. The citation for this information is a paper titled Supplementing Small Farms with Native Mason Bees Increases Strawberry Size and Growth Rate by authors Lisa Horth, H-O-R-T-H, and Laura Campbell. That was published in the journal of Applied Ecology in September of 2017. Some background for you. Native mason bee is named Osmia lignaria. This species is a valuable natural pollinator for some woody orchard species. But before this paper, no one had tested the ability of mason bees to pollinate herbaceous crops. Herbaceous means more like an herb than a tree in this situation. And the plant specifically is strawberries, which are a lot more like an herb than a tree. A few fun facts to motivate this study. The global economic value of pollination is estimated to be $199 billion dollars. Of the 124 primary crops consumed by humans globally, 70% are insect pollinated. Crops dependent on pollinators are also about five times more valuable than crops not dependent on pollinators. Those are my fun facts. So why mason bees? Unlike honeybees, most native bee species, including mason bees, are solitary which means they do not live in colonies, which means they are not susceptible to colony collapse disorder, which is the massive decline of bees uh, in the recent decades. Mason bees overwinter and can be purchased in cocoons that you can easily put out on farms, and emerged bees have a small flight radius, so they remain localized, which means if you buy them, they don't fly away from your farm when they hatch. Uh, all of which offer great potential for pollination services. Mason bees emerge from their cocoons in early spring when most other bees have not yet emerged. Adult mason bees forage, which means they're out there in the environment vectoring pollen around in this special niche time before all the other bees show up, all the way up until early summer, which is the time when mason bees must pass away. The benefit to the strawberries here is that the bees get all covered in pollen from all different kinds of flowers. So they leave behind a mix of pollen on the flowers that they visit. And this allows for outcrossing of the berries. There's another berries genetic material present. And that means an opportunity to make bigger berries. So the outcrossing is the opposite of inbreeding. The more new genetic material you get as a strawberry plant, the better the likelihood of you being able to make bigger, more beautiful berries is increased. So the bees actually do make the berries better for human consumption. 
In addition to foraging, female mason bees also build nests. They got to do all the work. JK. In fact, they begin to forage and search for nesting sites almost immediately after they emerge from their cocoons. So tiny little babies are already out there making it work. Desirable nesting sites for these wasps. Nope, these are bees. Desirable nesting sites for these bees include muddy banks and hollow rotting wood. Mm. A female will create six to eight individual cells within a nest hole, like little baby boxes, and she'll lay one egg in each cell and then give each egg an allotment of pollen and then cover the hole with mud before moving on and repeating the process with a new nest hole. Mason bees lay their eggs in a ratio of four females to six males with females laid first. And eggs laid throughout the spring transform into larvae within cocoons and then mature into adults by the end of the summer. They then overwinter in the cocoons until emerging from their cocoons in the spring. So what they did in this experiment, they went to nine family-owned strawberry farms. So these were small, not industrial farms. For the first experiment I'm going to tell you about, they placed cocoons on one side of each strawberry plot, but not on the opposite side so that they had a control treatment as well. The control treatment was not insect-free. It's just the normal farm environment with no mason bee intervention. So there were all kinds of flies and spiders and other bee species present and in the mix. But the authors actually did a nice job describing the variety and number of other pollinators present. And in fact, having that other stuff in the mix really strengthens their findings because the mason bee effect has to overpower the effect of everything else going on in the environment. That was well done. They tagged and monitored individual strawberries on different plants throughout the growing season, and then they performed statistical comparisons of strawberries from the treatment and control groups for differences in growth rate and size. The second experiment that coupled with this, they supplemented farms with bee homes constructed from three different materials, bamboo, reeds, and wood. This tested whether a subsequent generation of bees would actually emerge the following spring. So is the system self-sustainable in terms of building a pollinator model? And whether the bees had a preference for nest material type. So they were investigating that at the same time as they did their strawberry trial. And what they found is that O. lignaria, which are the mason bees, having them supplemented on the farms resulted in bigger strawberries and better berry growth rates than control berries. For nest material preference, there was a big effect. Bamboo was much preferred over regular reeds and wood homes. And they quantified this not only by the number of homes inhabited, but the actual number of mud-capped holes, so the number of babies that were being laid in these homes. And by both measures, bamboo was the favorite. A couple discussion points. They showed that native bees provide valuable pollinator services, and the system is worth developing further. I would agree with that, just based on the success of a single growing season. They're currently expanding this work to see if the mason bees will have the same effect in a greenhouse setting, which is probably important for scaling up and doing agricultural level industrial farm work with these bees, since all the studies we talked about today were done in these small family farms. The authors note that the use of artificial bee homes worked well in this study, but again, the study only went on for one growing season. So they attached this warning that there was a three-year Canadian study where data were collected from almost 600 bee hotels in Toronto, Canada, 
and several problematic issues arose. This was kind of interesting, so I thought I would tell you. The issues they had were that the native bees were parasitized significantly more than the introduced bees. So the native bees would be like the mason bees, so they're going to be parasitized more, unfortunately, than other bees that are present. Native wasp colonized actually three-fourths of the sites. So these are parasitoids of the bees. So unfortunately, they had parasitoids taking over three-fourths of the sites each year and parasitizing the bees in the hotels. And ants actually took over to parasitize the bees in one hotel as well. So all of this indicates that care must be taken when you're using artificial bee homes. And I think it's important to mention that in light of the recent increase in people keeping bees <laughs> at home, it's not always a good thing to try to intervene. I do think most people have their heart in the right place, but it kind of doesn't matter where your heart is if you're messing things up. That was our first science story. Let me tell you about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon I'm back. It's the Grok Science Show with me, Becca Satterwhite. I have a quick story for you titled Vital Information from the Literature. This is a special, incomplete story. I found a citation and an abstract, and I built this from it, so I don't have a ton of information, but here it is. The citation is, Orangutans and Gorillas Just Do Not Light Snakes. That's by Murphy, Stromberg, Rosenthal, and Bastion in Herpetological Review. That was published in 2014. The story, as far as I can ascertain... The, <laughs> these accounts are not the first time that the zoo's orangutans have reacted to snakes in their enclosures, though it is unclear whether the orangutans intend to kill the snakes or simply move them. The orangutans' retrieval and use of objects, for example, pieces of enrichment items, God knows what that means, like plywood, to aid them in these interactions with snakes is impressive. I agree. I think tool use in animals is very impressive, especially like to smack snakes around. As an aside, studying a population of wild snakes in a zoo setting can be informative, especially since visitors can assist as snake spotters to build a larger database. That was actual text from the <laughs> abstract. And then what they did, as far as I could figure out, was this is the, the Dallas Zoo, the Dallas, Texas Zoo. The herpetological staff began a 13-year mark and recapture study of Texas rat snakes. They examined the activity patterns, growth rate, and population size distribution of recaptured snakes. A total of 206 snakes were collected during the study period over the course of 395 total capture events. That's roughly 32 capture events per year. But they didn't write a great abstract, so we have no idea what happened other than both orangutans and gorillas just do not like snakes.
You're listening to the Grok Science Show at WHPK 88.5, Pride of the South Side. I have a quick community event promotion for you. This one's coming up quick. It's the Chicago Latin Jazz Festival at Humboldt Park Boathouse, where our friend Chance the Snapper is currently living. July 12th through 14th, so you got to run out right away. Friday, tomorrow, includes a tribute to trumpeter and conguero Jerry Gonzalez by the Chicago Latin Jazz Collaborative, led by trumpeter Victor Garcia. And Saturday and Sunday focus on women, featuring saxophonist and flautist Jane Bunnett and her Cuban sextet, Makeke? M-A-Q-U-E-Q-U-E. Chicago vocalist Nidia Rivera and Cuba's Melva Santa and Eschetti. That's the Chicago Latin Jazz Festival. For more information, do visit jazzinchicago.org because there are a ton of events coming not only in July, but the rest of the year. listening to the Grok Science Show with me, Becca Satterwhite, and I have a science story for you called Let the Fungus Kill the Bugs. This information comes to us from an article headed In-Depth, colon, Malaria. In the Science Journal from May of 2019, the article is titled Fungus with a Venom Gene Could Be New Mosquito Killer by author Gretchen Vogel. So the story here, malaria is still a huge global threat, not in the USA, but in a lot of other countries especially to children. As a reminder, what we call the malaria parasite or the causal agent of the malaria disease is actually several species of related microorganisms called paramecium, which are spread by or vectored by mosquitoes. Since the 1980s, insecticide-treated bed nets have been a huge public health success, having saved millions of lives. However, nature has caught up to us. The mosquitoes have evolved resistance to the insecticide commonly used in bed nets. So the protective effect of these nets against malaria has weakened over time. And once again, we need new interventions. Researchers have tested dozens of different fungal strains against disease-carrying mosquitoes, but none have been effective enough to pass muster as a treatment. So researchers from the University of Maryland in College Park and the Research Institute of Health Sciences in Center Miraz in Bobo Diolazo, Burkina Faso, added a gene for a toxin isolated from spider venom that turns on when it comes in contact with the insect version of blood. So they isolated a toxin from spider venom that turns on and becomes venomous or harmful when it comes in contact with insect blood. So in the lab, the team was able to show that creating this could kill mosquitoes faster 
and that just one or two spores of the fungus could cause a lethal infection in the mosquitoes, which is great, but they need a field test to make sure that it will work in nature and as a public health intervention. So Burkina Faso was a promising place for such a field test. Unlike many countries in Africa, it has an established system to evaluate and approve the use of genetically modified organisms. This is a genetically modified organism we're talking about, a fungus that has a spider venom gene in it, and it's saving lives, or that's the idea here. Burkina Faso has an established system of using GM organisms and trying them out. It also has one of the highest rates of malaria in the world. So the need is very great in this area. And insecticide-resistant mosquitoes are widespread here as well. For those and other reasons, the U.S. National Institutes of Health funded the Mosquitosphere, which is specifically designed to test genetically modified organisms. The Mosquitosphere is a 600-square-meter structure in the African village of Somoso, built like a greenhouse but with mosquito netting instead of glass. In the field test, they found that the fungus eliminated 99% of the mosquitoes within a month. So very highly successful field trial. The fungus has clear advantages to pesticides as well. It spares insects other than mosquitoes because it really has to come in contact with that mosquito blood to become active. It also doesn't survive long in sunlight, so it's unlikely to spread outside the building interiors where it would be applied because the natural environment is hostile for this fungus. But it's a long way away from real-world use since it is genetically modified to be more lethal. The researchers anticipate regulatory obstacles for widespread use. However, this is still a very promising treatment for a really horrible disease in a really, really needed area. I love stories like that. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Grok Science Show on WHPK, and I have one more quick story for you that's not even really very scientific, but it's very important in Chicago, and that's that we have an alligator. An alligator showed up at the Humboldt Park Lagoon this week, and Chicagoans are losing their minds. I come from a city with multiple bayous in it, so it's not that big of a deal to me, but here it's like we crowned a new king. A contest was run to pick his name, and so Chance the Snapper totally rules as a name, in my opinion. Crowds have been gathering at the Humboldt Park Boathouse to blare salsa music and party and eat and drink to honor chance. Today, I received a Facebook invitation to an event titled, Let's Go Feed Cheeseburgers to the Humboldt Alligator. He has his own sassy Twitter, at Chance Snapper. And Chance the Rapper even tweeted, just landed and found out I got an alligator, which is pretty great. Apparently, the city hired some dude named Alligator Bob to capture Chance the Snapper, Alligator Bob has a long track record of rescuing alligators and seems to be having a blast because his local celebrity status has skyrocketed in the last few days. This whole thing is wonderfully silly and a great demonstration of how Chicagoans will build local pride and a whole community out of basically nothing. for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the Grok Science Show from WHPK on Apple Podcasts. Note that we are the UChicago branch of a larger Grok's network. Our show is the one with the yellow Petri dish and the affiliation to WHPK. All episodes are available on internetarchive.org. Just search for Grok's WHPK or go to tinyurl.com slash WHPK. Email me your events for promotion or send me your science story to satterwhite at uchicago.edu and check out our next show in two weeks. Bye! I'm in the bumble-